Busted play here. Sanchez gets hit. The ball's loose, and it's Remember That Guy. The sports podcast will remind our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present. And I'm once again one of your hosts, James. I'm your other co-host, Diaz. And our special guest today, here to defend his inflammatory remarks made about Mina Kimes. Here's Jeff Garcia. And Jeff is actually going to exit stage left. Uh, Jeff... You know, much like his NFL career, it was a little overhyped. It wasn't as good as we thought it was going to be. And he's getting out quickly. So we're going to go to everybody's favorite special guest. Please introduce yourself. That's right. It's me, the guy who loves Mina Kimes and does not talk shit about her on Twitter. The very special guest, Xavier. Who's definitely not having any horrifying flashbacks right now after, after that little intro there. <laughs> it's fine. My mind is in many places right now, so I just enjoy. I'm just. I just enjoy your presentation. About one of the favorite things about the butt fumble for me is they don't do the Sports Center not top ten anymore. They don't do the not top ten play of the week because the butt fumble won for a year straight, and they were like, "This is just gonna keep winning forever. We need to just retire the segment." Mark Sanchez's butt fumble was so bad that one of my favorite Sports Center segments no longer exists because it was just universally agreed upon that it would never be eclipsed. At least he's making TV money now, so, you know, things are fine for him. Look, Mark Sanchez is only the second-ever rookie to make a conference championship game. Uh, the first, of course, being our collectively beloved Joe Flacco. He also had four playoff uh, road victories in two years, which I believe still was the most ever in someone in the first two years, because most people I, who make I, the playoffs are hosting these games. No, yeah, because Joe Flacco only had the uh, three in his first two seasons. So, yeah, he did surpass. There will come a time down the road. Maybe, Xavier, your, your 20-something-year-old child or your grandchild comes up to you. They've been looking through pro football reference, uh, which is one of the last vestiges of society left in this apocalyptic wasteland. And they came across, without knowing, the stat line of, of Mark Sanchez looked at that. They would see a relatively competent quarterback with a, a host of some accolades to his name. If you were to just look at the statistics, nothing to hate there. Yeah, uh, I mean, that, that, that sophomore season was the one where I really thought, this, this is the one that's going to kickstart things. You know, the, the rookie season, I was certain we were going to beat the Colts in the championship game. And before Sean Green got hurt, I mean, we were winning at halftime of that game. All I thought was, wow, the Jets are going to make the Super Bowl for the first time. In my, in my lifetime, with a rookie QB, and I believe Rex Ryan was rookie head coach at that point. And as soon as you had that thought enter your mind, that was when it all turned south. You couldn't allow that. that again, that's probably what happened the season before when, when I was watching rookie coach and quarterback Joe Flacco and John Harbaugh uh, against the Steelers. Then at one point I was like, you know what? Yeah, we probably got this. Nope. There is no joy in sports. They, got, they had one more chance the next season, and if that game was two minutes longer, they beat the Steelers who didn't show up to play the second half. The problem was the Jets didn't show up to play the first half, and that was enough. <laughs> well, to continue moving past, you said your mind was, was occupied by many things. Xavier, I would love to hear some of those things that are occupying your mind right now and making memories. Yeah, so in progress memories, part of my brain is in Columbus, Ohio, watching the U.S. men's national team play El Salvador in the a very important World Cup qualifier. It's the second to last World Cup qualifying window. This window, they have three games in seven days, home against El Salvador, away at Canada, and home against Honduras. 
Right now, the U.S. is second in World Cup qualifying for CONCACAF, right behind Canada and ahead of Mexico and Panama. It's essentially a four-horse race at this point. Those four are well ahead of the other four in World Cup qualifying, which are Jamaica, Honduras, El Salvador, and Costa Rica. The way it works in CONCACAF, the top three of this last eight automatically qualify. Number four goes to an intercontinental playoff game, which used to be two legs, but because of COVID, they're making it a single leg uh, neutral site tie. So whoever finishes in fourth place will go play New Zealand somewhere in the world. So this is a really big set of qualifiers because the last three games the U.S. has in uh, the next window in March is at Mexico, home against Panama, and at Costa Rica, which is really difficult. So they want to make sure they get it pretty much done this time. They made it, took a risky strategy of playing cold-weather games against some Central American opponents. Hopefully the pitches hold up so you know the USA can showcase the fact that technically they are better than these teams, but we all know weather can be great equalizer, so we'll see. But fingers crossed, by the time you're listening to this, I will be a happy person. Fingers crossed, indeed. Go USA. I will admit, if you had uh, asked me which CONCACAF country was currently in one, I would not have guessed Canada. Canada has the best player in CONCACAF right now, in Alfonso Davies. He's Canadian? Yes, Alfonso Davies is Canadian. Uh, I had no idea he was Canadian. He came up in MLS through the Vancouver Whitecaps. Unfortunately for Canada... Alfonso Davies is currently recovering from having COVID-19 and he developed myocarditis while dealing with COVID. Uh, But yeah, Alfonso Davies with myocarditis is out for a significant period of time, unfortunately. And I would love Canada to make the World Cup as long as it's not at our expense. So I hope that Alfonso Davies comes back healthy soon. So I am aware, was aware that Alfonso Davies is Canadian, but I remember when I was a kid, like I had the same thought about Steve Nash because you're having a conversation with my travel basketball team. It was like, oh, name one good white American basketball player. I was like, bro, Steve Nash. And then I was quickly shut down by my teammates who said, fuck no, he's Canadian. (laughs) I I learned what's what that day. And Steve Nash also very, very good at soccer. When uh, what TNT, I think, had the Champions League, Steve Nash was just on their like their halftime show. It didn't make sense to me, but he's evidently got soccer chops as well. So yeah, Steve Nash, big Steve. big soccer fan. His his favorite sport growing up, actually, I believe. Canada actually has another really really good player, Jonathan David, who is a striker for Lille, uh, Losc Lille, who won the French league last season, and right now he's the second uh, top scorer in France. And Arsenal are looking at maybe spending $70 million to buy him. So Canada, no slouch. They don't have the depth of the U- of USA or Mexico right now, but their top-end players are really top-end. Sounds like most Canadian hockey teams. <laughs> well, that's I, I'm, I appreciate you letting me know that that's all going on, because otherwise I probably wouldn't, but I like being kept up to date on it. Diaz, is there anything that, that you need to keep, keep I and our viewers up to date on? For my portion of this segment, we can just rename it the Joel Embiid Hour because I'm just going <laughs> to keep fucking talking about him. So just just now, as we are recording this, he was officially named, as if there was any doubt, to the NBA All-Star team. And just some more ridiculous performances. He managed to score 38 against 
the Spurs, which was a bit of a down performance for him compared to what he's been doing. So we contained him for 38 points. Thank you very much. He, he needed 30 shots to get 38. Like that's like that's as best as you can hope to do with the made with him the work his for caliber. Him. And then the Sixers, as they are want to do, come out with a pretty lackluster performance opening against New Orleans Pelicans. Embiid at halftime says, hey, it's on me. Don't worry, we're going to turn this around. Sure enough, ends up with 42 and 14, just casually. I watched the whole game, and his stat line just amazed me at the end because it was one of those where he was just casually dominant. You don't really think he's doing that great, and then you look up, it's like, oh, holy shit, 40 and 14. A a Tim Um, Duncan performance, so to speak. Exactly, exactly. Uh, With some blocks thrown in there, too. And one thing that just was reported today that I want to note because as we have made very clear with this podcast, we do have a character clause. We do like for the guys to be good in a universal humanity sense. And Joel Embiid got a double technical, got involved with a, let's let's use a nice term and let's say bench player <laughs> normally. Maybe wouldn't be in the league. But Jose Alvarado and Joel Embiid got in a mini dust-up. They both got... And, you know, for, for Embiid, the, the fine that comes with the technical is like a drop in the hat, right? I think it's like 5000 something like that. But 5000 to you or to me or to a person that's on an NBA minimum contract like Jose Alvarado, 5000 is a lot of money. So Embiid is covering his fine. He didn't say anything publicly about it. It was actually Alvarado that came out today and said yeah you know Joel Embiid got in touch with me said he's going to pick up my fine and you know that's certainly not anything that is expected or that he has to do but just speaks to the quality of human that as we are able to tell from our distant view of never actually interacting with him but does seem to genuinely be a good person which just makes me all the more happy to root for him and hopefully we're, we're looking at another iconic performance tonight we will see by the time you're listening to this Sunday, you'll already know how he did. One other thing, LeBron, you're soft. You're scared of Embiid. We remember that you had that dirty foul on him last year. Embiid remembers it too, and that's why you're sitting out tonight. Your knee is not sore. I am calling fake news. And I am saying that LeBron is scared of Embiid, and that's why he's not showing up. Thank you, Joel Embiid. 100%. And tune in next week to see how I rant about this man again, because I can almost promise you, He's going to be making memories for me again. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But the game that you called the shot for uh, continuing the streak is the only game he hasn't scored 30 or more points in since Christmas. Yes. So every game of 2022, Joel Embiid has scored at least 30 points. I believe we're at 17 of 18 now that he scored 30. Yeah, it was the 25-point game against the Celtics that you saw that it was just too much of a win. Right, exactly, yeah, we were up, you know, I, I really, I blame Brad Stevens for somehow blowing that Celtics team that they put together, because, man, 30 years ago, like, it looked like the Celtics were ready to take over the whole NBA for a while, and now they are just stuck in the doldrums of mediocrity. I never bought into it. I never bought into Danny Ainge is gonna is going to pull everything off, because... He just clearly seemed so scared to actually do anything with those Brooklyn picks that whole time. And there was a reticence that came off to me, at least. I'm not acting like I'm fucking smart about this or anything. But the vibe that I always got was, you're too scared to pull the real trigger. 
That's why we always heard about the trade that Danny Ainge almost made. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's, that's, I, I just got that vibe. I'm happy on this one to have seemingly been proven right. <laughs> right. I mean, it's, I mean, it's not even necessarily that because, like, the assumption was just, oh, you got, you got Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. You have two great wins in such a wing-dominated game these days. Like, it doesn't really matter who you put around them. They're going to figure it out. But sure enough, you draft enough Romeo Langfords and Gershon Yabaselli's, and you keep blowing these picks and not turning them into anything. And now here we are. The Celtics are going to have to make some kind of move to shake it up here at some point. One of Tatum or Brown, I think, has to go. Um, and I think they're both very good players. But, you know, how many years can you keep running that back and you're capped at, like, a six or a seven seed? There's only so many times you can do it. Warren Hayward's leg is definitely like a huge that's true. or whatever. That's that's a big moment. That's pretty gruesome. That's one of the probably most gruesome injuries I've watched on live television. Ah, you know, Kevin Ware, Louisville. Yes. You know, no, there are worse ones. I'm not worse. saying there aren't worse ones. I think I watched that Louisville one with you. Right. But, oh, yeah, that one was, was brutal. Good. But, you know, Embiid making memories for me. Xavier, I wish we had the video to share with you folks because I've just been glancing at Xavier losing his shit in silence. Every couple of minutes. Um, but, but James, I'm curious uh, what, what memories are being made for you. I got two words for y'all. Amy Schneider. For those not in the know, Amy Schneider is now, and unfortunately this, this is going to remain the truth with her streak, but she's the second greatest Jeopardy champion of all time in terms of win streak. That streak did come to an end this week with 40 games, but second all-time streak, third all-time winnings with, million. And the thing about it is, uh, for those that don't know, I was on College Jeopardy once. I know a little something about this. This is actually an area of expertise I have. I I have gone back and watched some highlights recently because this streak has has once again gotten me excited about it. Anytime anyone goes on a good streak, you, you get kind of drawn into it. There are some other fine competitors in the history of it. And obviously Ken Jennings, who has hosted many of the games uh, that Amy Schneider was playing, it's really close between the two of them. And it's the two of them and then a very wide chasm until anyone else. And you would, you would not, cons- I just want to, you would not count James Holzhauer in that same. Was he the buzzer guy? The, uh, the one who was just really, really quick to buzz in all the time? He, he, he was quick with the buzzer and he applied game theory in a way. He's very good. James Holzhauer is incredibly good. Yeah, he, he made very smart wagers to win a lot of money. Um, James Holzhauer, I could say, is certainly, you know, James Holzhauer is the best at playing Jeopardy if what you care about at Jeopardy is the final score at the end of the day. Sure, that's a play style that, that counts. But in terms of, like, who I would take in a head-to-head matchup for Je- like, it's, it is Ken Jennings, Amy Schneider, and then something that's been incredible recently with Jeopardy is we, just before Amy Schneider, had a new second longest streak ever. Someone else passed James Holzhauer within the last year. That was Matt Amodio, whose game uh, streak came to an end at 38. And then very shortly after him, he got beaten. Couple days later, Amy Schneider makes her first appearance and then goes on to win 40 more games. It's been some absolute titans of the game. James Holzhauer's recently in our history. Uh, Arthur Chu, if you want to go back. By the way, Arthur Chu has turned out to be a total piece of shit uh, online, so fuck him. But he was very good at Jeopardy. He was one of the first people to really start get to be break out of like the classic, just moving your way down the column. And it's been particularly in the last 
five years, there have been long streaks. This year has had now two of arguably the five best all time. And it is, it's great to watch dominance. It's just (laughs) great to watch someone be good. There are so many small things about buzzer speed, but also about buzzer speed. And then when I watch Jeopardy, there are often times where I can tell because I did the same stupid thing when I would do like competitive trivia back in middle or high school when I was on teams for this because I'm a loser. It's sometimes about buzzing in and then figuring out the answer because you didn't know it when you buzzed in and you're just using all of the clues that have been given to you and trying to piece it together in that moment. And that is one of the things that Ken Jennings and Amy Schneider were able to do that separated them from everyone else. And you can see those gears turning. Some more behind the scenes info. A week of episodes is filmed in a day. You do two before lunch and then three after lunch. Her 40 wins were spread out probably they do two days a week so it's two weeks filmed every week that was over four weeks that was not a big stretch of time but there were some tournaments filmed in between that so she did actually take some long breaks between them and particularly in some of these later episodes it it felt like she could not be beaten she's playing on a different level than some of the other competitors and she was so good at getting better in the time off that she had, which was something incredible to see. People can can say if there's anyone that wants to, to complain, that's listening to this, all 20 of you, that I'm not talking about sports. Jeopardy is a sport to me, as far as I'm concerned, and we just watched one of the greatest performances of all time. And it was a pleasure. She'll be back in the Tournament of Champions. This Tournament of Champions will feature both her and Madame Modio. So this Tournament of Champions from the last year is going to contain two of the longest streaks in Jeopardy history going against one another. Absolutely incredible. And one other thing actually worth mentioning, Amy Schneider is a trans woman, so that's just fucking cool that that was a very visible thing, and she got to, uh, again, just absolutely wreck people's shit for several weeks on end. We absolutely love dominance. Like, so, I, I mean, somewhat related, you know, I was discussing of the four NFL teams that are left, who do you want to see win? I want to see the Chiefs win, because I want to see the next great dynasty, personally, over anything else. So... Here's, here's to Amy reasserting her dominance in the Tournament of Champions. Uh, and now that I've made everyone sit here and listen to us talk about Jeopardy uh, for several minutes, it is my absolute pleasure to pass the mic over to the person that came up with the least reprehensible villain last week uh, with Ty Domi. And that would be you, Xavier. Why don't you go ahead and uh, let us know how we're, how we're kicking this off this time. Yeah, happy to. Thank you, James. So... What we're going to talk about today are Winter Olympians in honor of the Olympics that are coming up in a month that no one seems to know about. Thought it'd be good press for, you know, those those plucky underdog Olympics. Uh, this is what's really going to get people paying attention to the Olympics this year. I mean, I mean, let's be real. The Winter Olympics have always been the redheaded stepchild of the Olympics. There are really, I think, only technically 12 different sports. It's just all variations for those 12 sports. Not a, not a whole lot there. But there is some fun stuff there and a lot of really fun stories. So I wanted to talk about some of those fun stories. I came up with, I found a bunch. If it turns out the two of you haven't taken some of them yourselves, I might real quick pop in at the end just for some quick shout-outs. But really what I, I want to do here is... Um, do either of you know who the first person to represent Thailand in the Winter Olympics was? No, I do not. Thailand. 
<laughs> I, I'm not I ashamed am. to say, not aware of that one. I'm trying to think if I can even name a Thai athlete, to be honest. And I don't think that I can. It's all right. It's all right. Because I'm not here to talk about the first person to ever represent Thailand, <laughs> who, by the way, name is Prawat Nakwachara, who competed in cross-country skiing in 2002 and 2006. He is an electrical engineering professor at Drexel University. That's so, so cool! A quick, quick Philadelphia shout-out uh, to him, because through him, I found out who I'm going to actually be talking about today. The first woman to ever represent Thailand in the Winter Olympics. Do either of you remember Vanessa May? Vanessa May? I do not. I don't think so. So, to understand Vanessa May, we have to go back to her beginnings. Vanessa May Vanikorn Nicholson was born on October 27, 1978, in Singapore. To a Singaporean mother, Pamela Toy uh, Long Tan, and a Thai father, Vorapong Vanikorn. Her parents divorced when she was really young, and her mother uh, remarried to a British man, and the family moved to London, where she picked up the violin. She had already started playing piano, so she was very musically inclined. At the age of eight, Vanessa May uh, embarked on a very intensive period of study with Professor Lin Yao Ji at the National Conservatory of Music in Beijing. She then returned to London and entered London's Royal College of Music. In 1989, at the age of 10, she made her debut with the London Philharmonia. We're talking about an Olympic athlete here, yes. right? I, I've not heard any athletics is. yet, but I've heard a lot of impressive life achievements. By the age of 13, she became the youngest soloist to record the Tchaikovsky and Beethoven violin concertos uh, per the Guinness Book of World Records. And I did find the actual like part of the, of the 2003 Guinness Book of World Records where this is uh, included. It's very good. She released her first uh, techno-pop album, The Violin Player, uh, in 1995, which reached number 11 on the UK charts. And in 1997, she performed a violin solo on the song Velvet Rope for the Janet Jackson album The Velvet Rope. She then gets her first taste of the Olympics in 2002, where she performs a variation of Antonio Vivaldi's The Four Seasons Summer 3 Presto during the opening ceremonies of the Winter Paralympics. Just making sure that I'm not dumb. That's in Salt Lake City, right? I That's in Salt sure Lake City. All right, cool, 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 cool. By 2006, SMA was ranked as the wealthiest young entertainer under 30 in the UK in the Sunday Times Rich List, having an estimated fortune of about 32 million pounds. Overall, she sold more than 10 million albums in her music career. What does it say about... Even the cultural difference between America and the UK, which is not something I thought was this big on a pop culture scale. I could not have fathomed that you were going to tell me like a concert violinist and later techno pop violinist was going to be anywhere near like the richest entertainers of that age. That's um, nuts. That's nuts that you can make a career that lucrative doing violin. Yeah, it's pretty wild, but you know what? Enough about her music career. It's time to talk about sports. Vanessa May sta uh, has stated that uh, she started skiing around the same time she began playing piano at around four before moving to the violin at five. And that it had always been her dream to be a ski bum. So in 2009, she took up residence in the Swiss Alpine resort of Zermatt to train as a skier. In an interview with The Telegraph in August 2010, she said, it has been my dream and I'm hoping people will accept I just want to give it my best. To even get to the Olympics, I have to qualify for the 2013 World Championships, and the standard is high. I know I am always going to be a few points behind the top guys. I am taking a plunge. I am British, but realistically, there's no way I could represent my own country. But because my natural father is Thai, they have accepted me. 
She registered with the Thai Federation as an alpine skier. There were so many different instances of people claiming random heritage as alpine skiers to get in. I'm so, this is great. I just can't believe that this is such a recurring element in this sport of alpine skiing. It's very good. And the International Skiing Federation, which is the FIS, has many times changed the rules to try to prevent stuff like this happening. But so in 2014, uh, Thailand had no alpine skiers in the top 500, which was what was needed to qualify for the Olympics. But Olympic rules allowed a secondary qualification, which is for countries who don't have anyone in the top 500, uh, they can send one man and one woman to the Olympics for slalom and giant slalom if they have 140 points or less. And in skiing uh, terms, you want lesser points than more. And you have to start at least five internationally recognized slalom or giant slalom events. And SMA tries qualifying and she's struggling or her point average for this is 269.44 on January 11th of uh, 2014. And she's right up against the deadline, nowhere near close to 140 she needs to be. So at the request of her management and the Thai Olympic Committee, a giant slalom competition was organized by the Alpine Ski Club Triglay and took place on January 18th and 19th of 2004 at Krajevic in Slovenia. So this was the last chance for Vanessa May to qualify. And they made an event. They just made a new qualifying event for her. They made a new event that included four separate qualifiers. What? How could you do? How could you get away with that? This is very like, so, who's, who's Alpine is it anyway? So essentially she just tried to, like. she was competing in as many as she could in, in that weekend. Her fourth and final qualifier of the weekend was a Slovenian National Junior Championship where she was 14 years older than everyone else and finished sixth. You can't even beat up on the little... Come on. Yes. Well, okay, I guess at that point they're not little kids because she's also, what, 32? Yeah, yeah. Goodness gracious. 35? She might have been? She might have been 35. I think she was 35. These, are Troy, these kids can drink! Okay, yeah, no, that's fine. A sixth-place finish is, is completely fine against kids that can drink. So after this, you know... Four competitions in two days at this hastily arranged qualifiers. She dropped her point average to 131.15 and made the Olympics. And she ended up being one of two alpine skiers to represent Thailand, along with a man named uh, Kanas Sucharitakal. I apologize if I, for any mispronunciations there. And she competes under the name of Vanessa Vonicorn, taking her birth father's last name for, for this competition. She finished. I think that's appropriate if you're going to yeah. try and, and pull this. So one month later, February 18th, 2014, uh, she finishes 67th out of 90 skiers uh, on the giant slalom. She did finish last of everyone who finished, but 23 skiers did fall and not finish on the, during the two runs. She's got to get across the line. During the, the two runs, because the, the way they do it is the two giant slalom runs are combined for your time. She finished a combined 50 seconds behind the uh, gold medal winner, uh, Tina Maz of Slovenia. Uh, she was, I think, like four or five seconds behind uh, the second to last competitor who actually finished. But you know what? She did, fin she did finish. And as we know from the Stephen Bradbury uh, episode, sometimes it's better to just, you know, make sure you don't crash. But, you know, it wouldn't be fun if this was the end of the story. On July 10th, 2014... Four Slovenian ski competition organizers were reported to have been given four-year bans 
on working with the Slovenian Ski Union and in FIS competitions because of a supposedly fixed Winter Olympics qualification for the Thai ski team, with the only goal being to successfully qualify Vanessa May. I mean, they did. They did that thing. If that's a thing that you can get arrested for, then... They weren't arrested. They were, they were banned from, from competition. If, if the 21st century has taught us anything, I feel like it's ethics and legality are two separate things. So, like, sure, they had to be banned. But, eh, was that bad? So, on November 11th, the FIS hearing panel issued their own findings about the Krevichech event. The weather was such that no regular race could be held... The competition's referee said that, quote, any comparable competition in Slovenia would have been canceled. A previously retired competitor took part in the competition solely to improve the scores of the participants. The official results of approximately 23 competitors for the two races on January 18th included results for at least two people who did not, in fact, attend the competition. The official results for the two races on the 19th also included results for someone who wasn't even in Slovenia at the time. One competitor who fell was given a, t- a timing that was 10 seconds better than what they had and put in second place on the results. And one participant started outside the starting area before the actual competition was started. So after this, the hearing panel uh, issued a worldwide four-year ban against Vanessa May, a uh, two-year ban against the chief of race, and one-year bans against the FIS technical delegate who was there who approved uh, her qualification, the chief of timing, the referee, and the starter. Uh, The FIS president, Gianfranco Casper, told the Associated Press, those who have been sanctioned have been sanctioned for good reason. At first, we were laughing when we heard it, but then we realized it's quite a serious thing. Without hyperbole, that is the most nakedly corrupt alpine skiing event that I have ever heard of. (laughs) We put enough qualifiers in there. It is the most. Absolutely. As two or more participants worked in combination to violate the rules, according to the FIS, the hearing panel recommended that all four events uh, during the competition be annulled, and that if they were annulled, that would mean that Vanessa May, uh, Federica Selva of San Marino, and Yeva Yaniskevici of Lithuania would not have qualified for the Olympics. Vanessa May issued a statement saying that it was nonsensical and saying that they were going to appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. The FIS council met and canceled all the results of, the, of, of those and issued a press release saying that she did not qualify for the, Olympic, the Olympics and should not have been participating. Although the other two, the San, Mar- the San Marinese and the Lithuanian skiers, were both uh, victims of the manipulated races. So they didn't punish them. The SMA gets this to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. On June 19, 2015, they voided her ban saying there was a lack of evidence that she herself manipulated the races and that, quote, weak FIS rules allowed for the hastily organized races. But they dismissed her appeal to restore the qualifying results, confirming that they were, quote, so defective that their results and qualification points gained therefom could not stand. And, there, and therefore, Vanessa Vanicorn remains ineligible to compete in the Sochi 2014 Olympic Winter Games. But they did order that the FIS had to pay her money. <laughs> Well, and, like, you can say whatever you want. She skied at the Olympic Winter Games. I know, that's like, one of my this favorite is, things. If this is the worst thing that happened, is that retroactively they say, nuh-uh, then, then I don't really see a downside. It's, it's, like, it's like Reggie Bush's Heisman. Like, 
you can fucking say whatever you want, but we all saw what we saw. Reggie Bush won a Heisman. Exactly. We all know. We all know. I so just, we're not done, we're not done here though. We, there's still more uh, Vanessa May that needs to be talked about. Despite this cast ruling, the IOC announced that they would not annul the results from the race and said that she could still be called an Olympian. May responded uh, in an interview with the BBC, I was so relieved to have completed both runs at the Winter Olympics, even if it was only to claim last place. I'm over the moon that I'm still an Olympian. It's fantastic news and such a positive start to, uh, to 2016. 2016 gets better. During the same time as her appeal to Cass, she had filed a defamation lawsuit against the FIS. She ends up settling this lawsuit in 2016 after FIS also paid her more, paid her more money the FIS also issued a full apology for their claims of race fixing and stated, Miss Vanicorn and her entourage did not in any way fix, contrive, or improperly influence the result, progress, conduct, or any other aspect of the FIS-approved races. After this decision was announced, Vanessa May, I'm sure with a massive grin on her face, said, quote, the fact that the International Ski Federation has apologized to me says it all. And now she can go back to her career as, like, an incredibly successful, celebrated concert violinist. Indeed. she did. So she did try to qualify for the 2018 Winter Olympics because she wanted to prove that, you know, she could do it without any cloud of suspicion. Unfortunately, she hurts her shoulder pretty badly and is advised that she has to stop skiing. Otherwise, it could affect her, viol- her long-term ability to play violin. She does officially retire for good in, 20, in 2018 prior to the 2018 Winter Olympics to focus on her music where she can be a multi-millionaire concert violinist. But everything is still pretty good, pretty good for Vanessa May. Man, imagine being so rich that you can decide you want to be a Winter Olympian. You know, it happens for a lot of people. It is. That's honestly one of my favorite things about the Winter... About all the Olympics, is every once in a while you find the person who clearly just had the vanity project of wanting to be an Olympian. And that's not to say that everyone that wants to be an Olympian, that it's a vanity project to them. You know, some dedicated athletes for the, the spirit of competition. There are also some people who just want to find whatever technicality they can to, to walk in that circle during the, during the Tour of Nations. The most recent Winter Olympics, there was a woman who like was just going so slow. Elizabeth Sweeney. Yeah, 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 and she and she just the volume of the qualifying events in which she participated in allowed her to garner a score that was high enough to qualify for the Olympics. She get, she gamed the rules to compete for Hungary by just showing up at as many as possible and just going right down the pipe, not doing any scores and just getting the minimum score that she could compile. There's a life lesson there. Sometimes I generally disagree with this. the The best ability is availability. If you're just there, and if you show up, you too can compete in the Winter Olympics. <laughs> Damn, that's a pretty good one to lead off with there, Xavier. <laughs> I told you, there are a lot of really good stories. And like I said, if you two both don't talk about some of them, I will come in right at the end to briefly give a shout out to a couple more. Great story. And obviously what we love about the Winter Olympics is the ability for all kinds of people to participate, regardless of their athletic chops or their athletic background. But what I want to talk about is somebody with an incredible athletic background. In fact, this is somebody that made Winter Olympic history. This individual 
is the first person to ever compete in the Winter Olympics and also be drafted into the National Football League. There's only been one person to ever do this, and I'm, I'm curious if either of you are able to get, guess that guy before I go ahead and officially introduce him. Not in a million years, I don't think. I can't guess. I don't know. Well, allow me to tell you both, and you're going to remember this name when I say it, I think at least, the pride of the University of Colorado, Jeremy Bloom. Do you remember name, Jeremy Bloom? does think sound so. familiar, but I don't know why. Wow. Maybe he jumps out more to me because Jeremy Bloom was drafted by the Philadelphia Eagles. <laughs> so that has. Oh, yeah, to do with no, it. that would probably give it away. So that has a lot to do with it. But uh, so Jeremy Bloom was a freestyle skier as well as a wide receiver and return specialist for the University of Colorado. Um, he was drafted by the Eagles in 2006, but. I'll, uh, I'll give I'll give some brief background on his his NFL career as well as his family ties because there's some, there's some interesting family stuff here as well, and I also I I want to give a tip of the hat to my roommate Brian Rose because when I brought up this subject earlier this week I was very clueless on who I wanted to go with, and Brian actually suggested Jeremy Bloom so shout out Brian thank you for your suggestion, so Jeremy Bloom, born April second nineteen eighty two. He began his college football career in 2002. He was on, he was the third string punt returner through injuries, so on and so forth. He does get an opportunity to become the first string punt returner, and he excels, absolutely excels. Uh, his first team freshman All-American as a punt returner also ends up making another All-American team. First team, not freshman, just first team All-American as a punt returner. He has... One play that set four Colorado records. He caught a 94-yard pass his freshman year. And to date, this record still stands in Colorado football history as the longest all-time passing play, longest scoring play from scrimmage, the longest gain on a first career reception. This was his first catch. He takes 94 yards to the house. And the longest gain by a freshman. Whoa! That's Yo, that's a very dense play in terms of records. I, I dare anybody to find one play that set more records in and of itself. Not career records, but one play to set that many single play records is pretty impressive. Jeremy Bloom also holds another record. His sophomore season, he is playing against Baylor and has the record for most combined return yards in a single game. He had 143 kickoff return yards and 107 punt return yards. So this combined 250 to this day stands as the record for Colorado football. Now, unfortunately for Jeremy, his college football career comes to an end after just these two seasons. This is not due to injury. This is not due to performance. Clearly not due to performance. Jeremy Bloom ends up being one of the forefront figures in what has now become such an important conversation in college athletics, which is the name, image, and likeness debate. So Jeremy Bloom, while in college, playing college football, he's actually making about six figures a year before he even gets to the NCAA based on his skiing credentials. He's already ah. one of the elite skiers, freestyle skiers in the world. So he's clearing well well into six figures annually before he even gets to college based on his skiing credentials. 
And he's not saying to the NCAA, hey, I want to be able to do these sponsorship deals. Hey, I want to get paid for the the performance that I'm doing on the field for Colorado. I want to be compensated for the revenue I'm generating. He's not saying any of that. He's saying, hey, I'm really good at this other thing, and these people are paying me for it. I just want to be paid by these people. There's a lengthy court battle that goes on back and forth. Eventually, the court side with the big money, which, you know, I mean, money doesn't dictate what, what wins legal cases. It's what the law is, right? It's what, it's what is actually important. So that's why this single athlete just saying, hey, I want to be paid for the things that I'm doing by these other people. It makes sense that the large NCAA gets its way, right? I think what, it makes sense. What frustrates me the most hearing that is how, like, risky football is to a otherwise <laughs> professional sports career that this dude has. And it just feels so fucking disingenuous, which is not unsurprising with the NCAA. But, like, to, to say that participating in this potential threat to your already blossoming, uh, blooming, I should say, professional career, th- that also prohibits you from benefiting from that professional career that you're putting in jeopardy. Right. I and thought there excellent. were rules about that, right. where you could make money on a second sport, but you then couldn't get a college scholarship. You had to choose one or the other. Well, maybe those rules came to be because of Jeremy Bloom. But I know that Jeremy Bloom had a decision to make, and it was, do I want to sacrifice my body out there for zero pay, or do I want to continue to be a world-renowned freestyle skier? So I'm forced to make this decision. Jeremy makes a decision that I think any of us would make if we were in that position and says, you know what, fuck that. I want to compete in the Olympics. You know, important to note, before he even begins his college football career, he has already competed in the Olympics. <laughs> in the 2002 Winter Olympics, uh, Jeremy Bloom placed ninth in freestyle skiing. And, you know, at this age, you know, he's, he was already one of the young up-and-comers. The, the skiing community had their eyes on him. At 15, he became the youngest male freestyle skier to ever make the U.S. team. So this is some years before even the 2002 Olympics, but he does compete and finishes ninth. Once he is disqualified from being able to compete in college football anymore, he's actually able to focus full-time on skiing, and this kind of leads to a further rise in, in the profile of Jeremy Bloom. By 2005, he is considered the top-ranked freestyle skier in the world, number one, and he actually enters these 2006 Olympics as the hands-on favorite to, to take gold. Wow. What I learned in my research is freestyle skiing is scored very similarly to gymnastics. Yeah. In that yep. if any of us or if anybody else at home that does not have a very strong background in that sport, we're going to watch anything that these people do. We're going to be like, holy shit, that was the most amazing thing I've <laughs> ever seen. The judges are going to be like, ah, well, technically, you were leaning a little backwards when you landed. Technically, your like knee angle was off by like five degrees. So we're going to ding you for all that. And it's a 20, second, 20 seconds that you really have to be able to show what you have. It's about 20 seconds. You have two jumps. Between each jump, there's significant bumps and hills that you're going to be going over. You need to maintain your balance through those. And then on the, the two jumps, the show off. The moguls. They're the moguls. Yeah. The moguls, exactly. Which means mound honest. in, yes. I can't remember which language. 
Well, I, I am certainly not a skiing mogul, so I appreciate your both of your insights in, into that. But yeah, so Jeremy makes it through to the finals, does two sick jumps. Like one is like a 720 where like he crisscrossed the skis. And then the other was, I think it was just a 360 with like a little more exaggeration to it. And the whole time I'm watching, I'm like, oh, wow, J- Jeremy killed it. Like, that must have been amazing. The commentators immediately on both of them, like, oh, and that landing is going to cost them. And I'm like, what, what fucking landing? What are you talking about? <laughs> this, is, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my fucking life. <laughs> Unfortunately, the commentators who study the sport and the judges who know it very well, Apparently, they saw some things wrong with what Jeremy did, and Jeremy ends up not even meddling, actually. He, he finishes sixth. Uh, and you know, following the, these 2006 Winter Olympics, this actually is essentially the, the end of Jeremy's skiing career. He does end up coming back in 2008. He does qualify for the 30-man roster for the U.S. ski team, but... Does not compete in the Olympics again. So he just had these these two runs. But the fact that he even made it back to qualify for that team is incredibly impressive. Because in the two years between, Jeremy Bloom decided to start his NFL career. So we alluded to this. He comes off the 2006 Olympics and immediately begins training for the NFL Combine. Participates in it some weeks after competing in the Olympics. So, and this is actually something he talked about is he feels that his abilities could have been greater. He could have performed even better in either individual sport had he been able to solely focus on them. Because, you know, with some sports, there's enough crossover there where your body type is going to stay basically the same. And the training methods you're going to do are going to be very similar Skiing and football are two incredibly different things that require incredibly <laughs> different muscle groups. Yeah, I can't, like, picture a lot of football bodies skiing gracefully. Right, and, you know, Jeremy was a smaller guy. He was 5'9", 180, so... A little that makes sense easier. for the balance. Uh, the, the lower center of gravity, all that, but... Yeah, like you said, there, 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 there's not a ton of crossover there. So, he's drafted... In the fifth round by the Eagles. Goes through mini camp. He is also a wide receiver, but the focus here is to develop him as a returner. Unfortunately, at the end of training camp, he hurts his hamstring. Which, oh, go figure. You know, you're trying to radically transform your body again. You pick up an injury. So he spends his entire rookie year on the IR. Uh, comes back for the 2007 preseason. Averages just over 20 yards on per kick return, about 8 yards of punt return. Unfortunately, if all you are is a return specialist, these numbers are not really going to cut it. So he is cut by the Eagles. He does join the Pittsburgh Steelers later this year just for the playoffs. Was not actually active in the playoffs game, but they did sign Jeremy Bloom ahead of their playoff game against the Jaguars. He goes through training camp with the Steelers and is unfortunately waived. He's one of the last cuts. So after pivoting his entire career, Jeremy Bloom does not ever see regular season action in the NFL. However, nonetheless, the fact that he was able to excel in both sports, as demonstrated by his performance at Colorado, and 
you know, he came in sixth at the Olympics, but to enter the Olympics as the odds on favorite. And again, to my eye, had an incredible performance. I would have given him the gold if it was my decision. I didn't see any what anybody else did. Maybe they were better. But what I saw looked like a fucking gold medal to me. Um, and, you know, I'm a guy that's watched maybe 30 minutes of freestyle skiing in preparation of this. So, like, I consider myself basically an expert. That's what's so difficult about the Olympics, though. It, it, you spend how many years, you know, training, doing run after run after run after run and then it's like one fall or not even a fall just a a little tweaked landing and that you know takes out years of progress and you have to wait another four years to hopefully get another chance and that's what's you know so difficult about stuff like that yeah because like i'm sure he's got multiple you know titles on on a national level he's probably got some international non-olympic titles but man in those sports where the biggest international eye turned on them happens at the Olympics, it feels weird how much like a poor performance there sometimes can erase greatness elsewhere. Certainly. And like, and I do want to say for the record for this podcast, he was a three-time world champion. He was an 11-time World Cup gold medalist. He is the youngest freestyle skier to ever be inducted into the Ski Hall of Fame. So, like, by all accounts, Jeremy Bloom is one of the greatest freestyle skiers of all time. He just never got the gold. At the his, tr- his trophy cabinet is not bare. Exactly. is plenty to, to fill up the, the trophy case. And just the fact that you can be elite in two separate sports that really have zero crossover, pretty fucking astounding. So... Shout out Jeremy Bloom um, and the other just brief aside, because I did allude earlier, I wanted to mention a family thing. His sister Molly was also training to to be a freestyle skier. Unfortunately, due to injuries, was not able to qualify for the Olympics. But have you heard of the, the movie Molly's Game? No. Yeah, the one with Jessica Chastain in it? It's, it's the one about yes, the gambling. Yes. Jessica Chastain, yes. Yeah, that was that was Molly Bloom. That was Jeremy Bloom's sister. That oh shit was Molly Bloom's game. Um, in April 2013, she was charged with running a high stakes poker game that originated in the Viper Room in Los Angeles, which attracted wealthy people, sports figures, and Hollywood celebrities. She ended up pleading guilty to reduced charges, got one year of probation, a thousand dollar fine, two hundred hours of community service. Here's the thing: a thousand dollar fine. She had to give up one hundred twenty five thousand dollars that she made from running those games so really in my eyes an $126,000 fine yeah I just I wanted to throw in that brief postscript about his sister that ran one of the high stakes poker games illegally in the United States but Jeremy great punt returner great kick returner great skier never able to make it quite to the pinnacle in either sport but the lack of transferable skills between those two and to be so good at both of them is absolutely astounding to me. So shout out Jeremy Bloom. He did score many touchdowns for me in Madden 07. So (laughs) at least you got that. That's what really counts. Oh, of course. This has been great so far, learning about two people that I did not know about. I love the Winter Olympics. And I, I think... Often it has more entertaining stories and love learning about yours. I'm going to tell you guys a story that you're familiar with, but here's the thing. You all have been robbed. 
I need you all to know that you have been robbed of a much better version of the story that you have been told. Because this is the story of the 1988 Jamaican men's bobsled team. Let's go. And I'm going to get to the guy. There, there is it, it was tough to find one guy because every single person involved with this, like really on their own, kind of could be. There are, <laughs> there are some phenomenal faces that we're going to meet in, in the next however long this takes to tell you the much better version of the 1988 Jamaican men's bobsled team. And it begins with two fellas. So it begins with two and very quickly kind of funnels into one. It starts with this guy named George Fitch and William Maloney. They were apparently two businessmen who were in uh, Jamaica. I can find almost nothing about William Maloney. His name <laughs> is mentioned as being there with George Fitch a couple times, and that's it. So this is me saying, hey, William Maloney was there, and I know almost nothing about William Maloney from that point on. So now we can focus on George Fitch for a moment. George Fitch is an American diplomat. He is he's born in China during the Chinese Revolution. What we really care about is that from 1985 to 1986, he is a commercial attaché for the American embassy in Jamaica. Oh, nice. That means that he advocates for businesses from America and Jamaica. It's a fancy way of saying he's a lobbyist for America, basically. During this time, he befriends a colonel in the Jamaican Defense Force, the Jamaican Army. But how cool is it that they called the Jamaican Defense Force instead? Not to, like, enjoy anything about the military-industrial complex, but that's a much better name, Jamaican Defense Force. And if you're also... Israel's the same thing. Well, so, I'm not going to dive into that, but, like, Jamaica, presumably, is really just interested in defending themselves. This is a fair point. Jamaica, historically, not been a big aggressor on the international stage. And in the Jamaican Defense Force, we are concerned... With a particular colonel, Colonel Roderick Kendrick Barnes. Ken Barnes is how he'll normally go. Colonel Ken Barnes. Uh, do you guys know the English footballer John Barnes? Yes, yes, I do. Played for Liverpool. Big anti-racism advocate. This is his dad. Colonel Ken Barnes is the father of one of the greatest left-footed uh, English football players of all time. So he's a big sportsman himself. There's a lot of a culture of athletics in the Jamaican defense force, which is very important going forward. And because he's a Colonel, pretty high ranking, he rubs elbows with diplomats. And so he becomes buddies with George Fitch. George Fitch eventually goes back to America, but he comes back to Jamaica in 1987 for a wedding that both he and Colonel Ken Barnes attend. And they're talking. And as guys that haven't seen each other in a while that run into one another at a wedding do they eventually start talking about sports and shit talking and the 1988 olympics are coming up this is back when both olympics took place in the same year they are talking about the summer olympics initially because colonel ken barnes is like oh, yeah we got we got our track stars i will go ahead and say they do get two silver medals uh jamaica in the 1988 seoul summer olympics so he's not totally talking out of turn they have a good track team but the conversation turns to a thought that occurs to George Fitch. It's like, well, what are you guys doing for the Winter Olympics? J Jamaica does not have any intention of participating in the Winter Olympics at this <laughs> time. But George Fitch makes the point, you know, you've got great athletes. And great athletes should be able to do pretty much any sport, essentially. And they kind of both have this notion, yeah, you know what? Th that is true. Maybe we should be able to, to get this. And George Fitch decides he needs to get a Jamaican Winter Olympics team. He doesn't know what sport yet until he's walking through the island, the eastern part of it. He's near uh, the Kingston Sports Club, which is on like the Blue Mountains area, and there's a pushcart derby. This is exactly what it sounds like. They are like 
market push carts basically being ridden as soapbox derby cars. These can apparently get to up to like 60 miles when they're going down some of these turns on the mountains. Oh, awesome. uh, it is a, yeah, it's a long time Jamaican tradition. And what really gets to him about this is the way they push these carts to get started. There is like a moment where they have to get that running start. And this brings George Fitch's mind to bobsled. Uh, a quick note on the origins of bobsled. So in the 1870s, there's this guy in the Swiss town of St. Moritz. And his name is Caspar Bedru. And he owns a hotel. Back at this time, people didn't go on vacations in the winter. They would like only vacation in these mountain towns from May to September. And he's like, yo, I've got this hotel for five months where it's making no money. And so he gets this idea in the 1870s to bet a bunch of his English customers that they should stay the whole winter. And if they don't have a good time, he'll pay for all of their lodgings that entire winter. But if he can, you know, keep them entertained, keep them happy in the mountain town and all that, and, and make their winter worthwhile, they will tell everybody about this. And they love it. And thus begins the concept of winter vacationing. And very quickly, he finds out, I do need more things for people to do here. And so they start sledding <laughs> into the town down below. They'll go down like the roads that are there, just through the town, you know, doing hairpin turns in intersections. The residents of this town don't like this after a little bit. And so they're like, okay, okay, here's what we'll do. We'll put a steering bar on the sled. So now we can steer the sled through the town and that, that's good, right? And the people at the time were like, no, you've kind of missed the point here. Our problem was not the reckless nature of the sleds. It was the presence of sleds at all in our streets barreling down. So he's like, okay, fine, fine. I, I don't want to upset the townspeople, but I still want this to be fun for all of my customers. And so he builds the first ever bobsled course in 1884. It's called Cresta Run. It is still in use today and has been used for two Olympics. And this is, that's bobsled. That's how bobsled comes to be. It just is this thing that people needed to do to entertain themselves while being drunk on vacation in the winter. And it's been at every single Winter Olympics, except for the 1960 Winter Olympics, which were in Squaw Valley, California, which I don't like saying, because it's a, uh, but that is where they were. They just didn't feel like building a bobsled track that year. Can I, can I tell you something that's very funny and also coincidental? Please. So uh, Vanessa, Vanessa May the first person to give a concert on the frozen lake of St. Moritz, where she hang glided down from the mountain and then performed on the, on the frozen lake. Vanessa May's really cool. You're, I feel like I'm being sabotaged here, though, by, by Vanessa May being brought up during my, during my no, look. It, it's just one of those things where throwing I, it, in there. it was on the list. And I didn't want, I didn't, I, it didn't make the final cut. Well, then I I... Talk about. But you said St. Moritz and it reminded me. I was like, oh. okay, in that case, I'm very glad that we got this extra nugget about Vanessa May. And, and I'm glad that it could tie into the noble history of such a great sport as bobsleigh. And we're going to say bobsleigh that one time because technically it's bobsleigh. So any, again, any of the 20 listeners that want to be upset with me, go for it. But I've said bobsleigh once. So every time I say bobsled, I'm knowingly getting it wrong. It just sounds better that way. Come on. Anywho, we are now back in 1987 and we want to get this bobsled team going because the biggest thing in bobsled really is that start. It is about getting your sled, sprinting on ice with it, getting that running start. And then afterwards, yes, steering and, and aerodynamics are important. But if you can get the start, the rest of it is much more learnable if you already have the sprinting experience. And so George Fitch 
And he goes to the Olympians that are already training for Seoul. They don't want to, like, injure themselves or anything doing another sport. So they're not going to take it because the Winter Olympics are going to take place before the Summer Olympics of this year. So instead, he has to hold open tryouts. Uh, we will take a moment now to mention the 1993 Disney film, Cool Runnings. Mm-hmm. Cool Runnings is the film that is going to, uh, I would say, dramatize these events, but it is, it is not a drama. It's a pretty funny movie starring John Candy. And a lot of it is inaccurate, as one might imagine, from a Disney <laughs> sports film. We have said something about Pushcart Derby. There's some bit about Pushcart Derby there in the beginning, so there's shades of gray. One thing that has been attested to is that the most accurate scene in that movie is when John Candy plays a clip about bobsledding where it shows several very violent crashes in bobsledding and informs all of them that your bones do not break in bobsled. They shatter, and then the lights come back on, and it is uh, virtually an empty room. This apparently is the single most accurate scene in the entire film, Cool Runnings. People don't want to do this. They find out about it, and it's a very violent thing. But he's got an ace in the hole. He has his buddy, Colonel Ken Barnes. So George Fitch turns to Colonel Ken Barnes. You gotta help me with this. Colonel Ken Barnes like, for the sporting pride of Jamaica, I've got this. He turns to a major that's with him. It's like, who are our fastest sprinters right now on the team? Well, two 24, 25-year-olds, Devin Harris and Mike White. Uh, that are in the military. He's like, all right, cool, there's two of your guys. And then George Fish says, well, for for the driver, we're going to want someone with really good hand-eye coordination. Colonel Ken Barnes, once again, to this major, he's like, who do we have that's a helicopter pilot? And he says, we have our guy, Dudley Stokes. Dudley Stokes is the driver for the 1988 Jamaican men's bobsled team. And he is the avatar that we will now sort of fixate around Uh, as we continue to go through this beautiful team. And it is initially formed with these three guys because they are initially competing in the two-man bobsled. This is what all of their training is going to be about. That is one of the older forms of bobsled. You know, the very first one was just two people on sleds. Kind of natural that you would start with that before four. Four is now what is more kind of classically ingrained in our minds, I think. Maybe because of Cool Runnings. It is probably the most mainstream (laughs) bobsled movie of all time. But they're originally planning for this too. So they start training with uh, these three guys, Devin Harris, Mike White, the second person named Mike White that we've gotten to talk about, and Dudley Stokes. They get, first off, Coach Howard Seiler. This is the closest analog to the John Candy character. He is not, like John Candy's character, a former cheater. He did not cheat in the previous Olympics. So we want to make sure that we take that stain off Howard Seiler's name. We don't want anyone to get that confused. <laughs> he did not compete in the 1972 Olympics. He did compete in the 1980 Lake Placid Games in the two-man bobsled. He finished pretty middle of the pack, but he is an Olympic bobsledder, and he's one of the guys that's going to be brought in for the coach. And then the other guy they get, they go to Austria and find a guy named Sepp Heidecker, who's basically Hans from the Mighty Ducks for this team. He, like... <laughs> gets their equipment together, starts organizing like the ice races in Austria for them to get their necessary qualifying competitions in. They just kind of under the wire, get their final qualifier in Austria. They're all set. They've got their equipment ready to go. They have two alternates as well by this point, Caswell Allen and Freddie Reggae Stokes. Freddie Reggae Stokes was one of the people that joined from the open tryout. He has just his reggae mixtape on him at all times that he is trying to hand out to people to get his reggae career started. Just an absolutely phenomenal character that we have almost no other information on. They finally are ready to go to the Olympics when tragedy strikes. Ten days before the Olympics, when the IOC says, you know what? 
no, we can't let this abide. Kind of the same with Vanessa May. This is this is silly. Don't don't patronize us this way. But a champion steps in for them, and that champion is the current reigning crown prince of Monaco, Albert Grimaldi, yes. who is also a five-time Olympian. In 1988, is preparing for his first Olympics, and he uses his power as at that time the son to the reigning monarch of Monaco to basically say, "Hey." You need to let these guys in. They do, for that reason. And so he is able to influence, even before he becomes the reigning monarch of the country of Monaco, international affairs in a different way, by making sure that our heroes on the Jamaican bobsled team, led by driver Dudley Stokes, make it to the Calgary Games in 1988. Another inaccuracy about the movie Cool Runnings. They are very warmly received by everybody. It is a little bit of a gimmick, like, haha, look at the warm weather team doing the Winter Olympics. People like gimmicks. There's nothing wrong with gimmicks. We're a pro-gimmick thing here. So, we finally come to their big event. They are all ready to rock on February 20th for their first of four heats. That is how pretty much all bobsled races work. Four heats updates your rank for your total time at the end of it. The person that has the fastest four combined times, that's the winner. Pretty easy to keep track of bobsledding in that case. The two-man race is going to be done by Dudley Stokes and Mike White. Mike White of the other four is going to be the one that comes in with Dudley Stokes. They get off to a pretty decent start. One minute, zero seconds, and 20 hundredths of a second for a decent 30th place. Uh, That is their fastest time of the day. They're at one point 22nd after their first two races. The next two don't go particularly well, but they finish every single time with a time that's about six seconds over four minutes, which is roughly what you want to like get as a decent contender. And they finish 30th out of 41 teams. They beat 11 teams. So honestly, you look at this and you're like, this is a resounding success. What could we possibly want more than this? So the movie Cool Runnings features a four-man team. As I've said, that is not something that at any point up until now, they have remotely considered. All of their training has been about this two-person team. And after they do that and are done that competition, they're like, you know what? We'd kind of like to do the four-person. Hey, George Fitch, can you help us do this? Well, George Fitch's like, all right, we have two problems. George Fitch, who has already spent 100000 of his own dollars, number one, I do not have any more dollars to spare necessarily for this. So we'll have to figure out a way to come up with funding because no one's going to loan you a four-man sled because you've basically never done this before and are a huge liability. The other problem is it's a four-man sled and we're down to three. Caswell Allen had injured his ankle during training recently and Freddie Reggae Powell had, in George Fitch's words, gone walkabout. He's just kind of MIA right now. So it is down to three people. It is down to Mike White, Devin Harris, and once again, our boy Dudley Stokes. And this is why I selected Dudley Stokes. Not because he's the driver, but because he is the one who comes to the rescue in this moment. Dudley Stokes calls his brother. His brother at this time is attending the University of Idaho in Moscow, Idaho. And his brother is training for track at the 1988 Olympics. Dudley calls Chris, older brother, says, Chris, I need you to real quick come to Calgary and compete in the four-man bobsled race with me and my friends. And Chris gets a special dispensation from the nation of Canada to immediately cross the border. He gets four training runs in, and just a couple days later, they are ready to take the ice for the four-man bobsled event. Because, with George Fitch's solution to the first problem, they have gotten enough money 
George Fitch and his wife make a deal with a t-shirt printer, and they print thousands of t-shirts about the 1988 Jamaican men's bobsled team that say, the hottest thing on ice. They entirely sell out. They sell these for tens of thousands of dollars, which is plenty enough to buy the Canada team's extra four-man bobsled, and so they're ready to go. And it doesn't go very well because this is not something that they have trained for. On the first run, Dudley Stokes, once again, who is in that front position, he is unable to properly get those bars that they have at the beginning that help them push it into the sled. As he gets in, he injures his shoulder, just struggles to drive down the stretch. It's one of their worst runs. Oh, no. The second one is also not very good. This time, Michael White, who was there on the two-man team, he just cannot get down initially. Like, almost as they come into the first curve, that's just when he finally gets his head down below. The aerodynamics completely slow them down, and it's two very bad finishes. Now we come to the third. This is the one that the movie depicts. If you are unfamiliar with the movie, they get off to a very good start on their race. The movie says they get off to a world record start. You could probably guess that that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but (laughs) they do get off to the seventh best start of any team as they get off on this third trial. This is the manifestation of what George Fitch and Colonel Ken Barnes envisioned. Sprinters are good at sprinting. If you give them a metal bar to hold while they sprint, they will sprint with a metal bar as well as anyone can sprint with a metal bar, essentially. And they are making very good time as they head down the course. There are a lot of weird requirements in bobsled courses because there's a lot of variance between different tracks, but there's supposed to be certain consistent things in order to like competitively balance them. One thing is a series of consecutive turns at one point. There was one, it was the ninth turn in this track called the Kiesel. They are coming into this with a very good speed. In fact, they're coming into this with just a little bit too much speed, just a little bit too much. And they do turn over the sled. Sled capsizes, keeps going for a while. Chris Stokes said, didn't realize that we crashed until he detected a burning smell. That smell was his brother's fiberglass helmet rubbing against the ice from friction and just burning away. Uh, so Dudley Stokes like, feels that that is eventually one of the things that slows them down. They do come to a complete stop. Everybody, miraculously, there's no serious injury sustained. Everyone is able to stand up crushed. You know, they just crashed in front of everybody doing this thing. They had said, you know, it was, it was the Jamaica in them that made them to decide to want to go for the four-person team after not training for it at all. And here, oh goodness, this hubris, what has it landed us? They start walking the sled across. And in the movie, there is a slow build to thunderous applause. In real life, there's a decent amount of applause. People do enjoy this. It, 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 there is definitely... Uh, a swell from the crowd embracing these guys as they go across it. And the athletes are like, we heard it. It absolutely warmed our hearts. Like it, it made it feel like a success again, that we had done this. At least they weren't booed. They weren't booed at all. No, ever like people were loving this. And part of the reason that this was catching on is that in the 1988 Olympics, the U S men's hockey team did very, very badly. They got eliminated super early because of that. The broadcast had planned all of this time that they had blocked out for hockey and had to fill it with something. Well, you know what they found to fill it with? All of the Jamaican bobsled team's heats. The timing worked out perfectly. And so this team got all of this press because they happened to have an opening in the broadcast schedule for them. Welcomed back home as heroes. 
this is a cultural event for Jamaica. It it lingers. This is not the end of the story by any means. In fact, nowadays, like some of these guys are saying, in terms of the cultural consciousness, they understand Jamaica's Bob Marley, Bolt, or Usain Bolt, and Bobsled, three Bs. It's a huge deal. And that is because this is not the only run. It would be a nice story if it was just the one. But Diaz, could you tell me what the Jamaican Bobsled team had? There was some things that they still had to prove. Some shit, one could say. They still had shit to prove. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed, that was the case. And so, just four short years later, we come to the 1992 Olympics, and it's almost the same team. We get the whole quartet back. Dudley Stokes, still our driver. And what we are going to do is replace one of our guys. Devin Harris is going to still be with the team, but he's only going to do the two-man. However, this four-person team, they're going to finish in the 20s now. Again, they're not competing for any medals. But they're beating some legitimate countries. The good news is, if anyone in 1992 Olympics was feeling bad about not doing well, Winter Olympians are two years later given another chance to compete. In 1994 Olympics, they now have Winston Watts and Wayne Thomas along with the Stokes brothers. Chris Stokes was called like three days before his first bobsled race. And he's now appeared in three consecutive Olympics as a bobsled participant, which is pretty, pretty incredible. He does not make the Olympics for track at any point, but he is a multi-time Olympian because his brother called him once to fill in for their bobsled <clears> team. <throat> this is the Jamaican bobsled team's absolute peak. They finished 14th this year. Some of the countries that they beat, France, Australia, Russia, U.S. Honestly, hysterical. They crush all of these countries to finish 14th. This is the greatest finish in Jamaican bobsled history. And it is, as with all peaks, the beginning of a slow degree. Now, the team continues. The Stokes brothers are going to do one more in 98. Winston Watts keeps going into the 2000s. Uh, competes all the way to 2002. And then finally, we do hit a period where there's kind of a lull in the just general existence of Jamaican bobsled. Uh, they're not able to compete in 2006. Now they'll compete in 2010. But there's still, there's passion there. Coming back in 2014, the Jamaican Meds bobsled team is able to qualify. Once again, led by Winston Watts. Winston Watts has now appeared for like 20 years in it. Uh, but more importantly, there's someone at the helm of the entire federation of Jamaican bobsledding, and that is retired Dudley Stokes. He is no longer a member of the team, but he is now both the president of the Jamaican Bobsleigh Federation and a part-time coach with the team. He puts a, a call out for fundraising because they have qualified now, but they do not have the money necessary to get the full team and equipment to Sochi, Russia, where the 2014 Olympics will be held. Call out for $40,000 on the internet. And a certain corner of the internet gets a hold of this information. The community around the meme cryptocurrency Dogecoin is called to action. They raised 30 of that $40,000 goal and are able to basically single-handedly send the Jamaican men bobsled team to the 2014 Sochi Games. That's fantastic. The beautiful sports movie has happened. We're now going to zoom in on everybody's faces one last time and give the, <laughs> the little burbs. Uh, George Fitch went on to serve four consecutive terms as the mayor of the town of Warrington, Virginia. 
he did unsuccessfully at one point run for governor. During that run, he raised campaign money by once again getting permission from the team to sell hottest thing on ice Jamaican bobsled team jerseys. Fantastic. Um, Devin Harris did participate with the Jamaican bobsled team all the way up until 1998. His only year on the four-man team was 1988, but he was on that two-man team for another three consecutive games, gave it his all the entire time. Chris Stokes did for a while serve as president of the Jamaican Bobsleigh Federation when it was founded in 1995, but then started to turn to training his daughter, Natalia Stokes, was not unfortunately the first woman to qualify for the Jamaican bobsled team in the Olympics on the women's side. That would come four years later in 2018 when one more time, our boy Dudley Stokes, still president of the Jamaican bobsled Federation following his brother's run, was able to get the first ever two-person women's team to the Olympics. They were the only Jamaican bobsleigh participants that year, but he's able to bring them out that one last time. And uh, that is to date, the last involvement of Dudley Stokes in Jamaican bobsled, but a well-known story that once again, I-, I think you're robbed of how good it actually is if you watch Cool Runnings. A, a story that I thought had to be expounded on more thoroughly, <laughs> and a story best represented by guy that got put on the team because he was a helicopter pilot and was lucky enough to have a track star brother that he could call three days before an Olympic competition. Phenomenal. That's so good. You know... Sometimes Hollywood takes liberties. This is one where I feel like they ignored things that would have removed the need for liberties. You had a perfectly amazing story here. Like, I would just, we need to cut out the last 15 to 20 minutes of the podcast and just send it to, to every, every Hollywood address. A, a sovereign prince of a nation basically forced the IOC to let this team in. That that wasn't included. He's a prince. You and made a Disney movie and you were given a prince to just put in a sports movie and you didn't take it. Again, half Philadelphian. Well, Xavier, I, I do want to go ahead and give you a moment because I know that you said there were some fleeting passages uh, for us yes. to discuss yes. here. So Four people just want to really quickly talk about that I found while uh, discovering each take less than a minute. One is uh, Kwame Nkrumah Achempong, who is the first person from Ghana to take part in the Winter Olympics when he was in the slalom in uh, the Vancouver Olympics. Because of his colorful outfit, he was known as the Snow Leopard. And he actually did beat people. He finished 53rd out of, 100, out of 102 participants. He did finish next to last but he did beat at least one person. Next is George Tucker, who, as far as I'm aware, is the first person to ever represent Puerto Rico in the Winter Olympics, in the 1984 Olympics, doing the luge. George Tucker is a physicist, but felt like trying this out. At this point, he was a doctoral student at Wesleyan University, and he was later described by Sports Illustrated as, quote, overweight but quick-witted and the press's favorite loser. He later described himself as the loser who dripped blood and time reported that he shed alarming amounts of skin bouncing off the wall because he kept hitting the wall and literally ripping skin off of his body. Yeah, the sled sports are really violent. But what I will say is luge of all sports, I feel like does lend itself towards like, you know, that physics background absolutely comes into play. So I, I, I also love the, the duality of man thing here, where this person is smart enough to be a physicist, who's also dumb enough to literally sacrifice their blood in name of their sport. 
Then we have uh, Philip Boyd, a cross-country skier from Kenya, who, as part of a program by Nike, was trained in Finland to become a competitive skier in the 90s. Uh, he was previously a, a middle-distance runner with no skiing experience and competed in the 1998 Olympics in uh, Nagano. I saw a pretty cool documentary, short documentary on YouTube, that, that, a, uh, that a Kenyan made about him, which was really cool. So he finished last in the 10-kilometer cross-country race that year, but the winner, Bjorn Dali, he had the award ceremony delayed to wait for him, to hug him when he crossed the finish line because he was so impressed by what he was doing. And it was so moving for Boyt that he named one of his sons Dolly Boyt, which I think is fantastic. Then the last one, and possibly my my personal favorite, is Anne Abernathy, who is a woman from Florida who, through blood relations, was able to compete for the United States Virgin Islands in the Luge. She was competing well into her 50s uh, in, in the Luge, in her first, her first Olympics, she was already in her mid-30s, and she got the nickname Grandma Luge because she was so much older than everybody else there. And she just looks like a soccer mom from Florida because that's essentially what she was before she decided that she wanted to try luging. And I Again, just love the nickname the, Grandma Luge. The concept Luge. of just, like, deciding that you want to be a Winter Olympian. Man, what, what it must be like to live those lives. Yeah, she competed in the 88, 92, 94, 98, 2002, and 2006. She crashed during 2006, but I think she technically got special dispensation to be counted as an Olympian for that year, too, because it was, like, right before her event. But the late 80s through the mid-2000s was competing as Grandma Luge, which I thought was great. Just wanted to give a quick shout-out to a couple of those couple stories. but I think they're all wonderful. I appreciate still getting to, to include them. But we have made our choices as to who our three are, and now we, we three have one choice, and that is which of these three to bring into our illustrious hall. I admit that my concern about bringing Dudley Stokes, uh, I'll play devil's advocate against myself. It, it is such a team accomplishment that it was really hard going into this to, to pick one to kind of fixate on. And I'll admit, I still cheat a little bit. Like I said, that was about Dudley Stokes. It, it was about Dudley Stokes the way the first King Kong movie is about King Kong. You don't see King <laughs> Kong until like 30 minutes in. But on the opposite side of it, like while there were plenty of characters there that you could have brought up with the Jamaican bobsled team, I do feel that team deserves a representative in our hall, perhaps more so than any team of all time. Because the, the story that we thought we knew and then the story that you've laid out, this is a team that needs to be recognized. And this is a team that needs to be enshrined. That is where I'm honestly leaning. I also, like, the thing that I would say, you know, you play devil's advocate, I'll play devil's advocate against Jeremy Bloom. Jeremy's story is notable because of what he did outside of the Winter Olympics, right? To a similar extent, I would say, you know, while uh, Vanessa May is the first Thai woman to ever compete in the Winter Olympics, Vanessa's story also very much related to what she accomplished outside of the field of competition. So with that, like, I I, I am just gravitated towards honoring and recognizing the Jamaican bobsled team, but I could be swayed as well. This is why it's not just a a single vote. 
here's what I'll say in Vanessa May's favor. You could take away the violin career and just a rich person that went through the lengths that she did to go to the Olympics and then had the fallout from the lengths that she did, that story might be able to stand on its own. And then you also have the fact that she's a multimillionaire because she's a concert violinist. So I love the Vanessa May story. I really like the Jamaican Bob sled team story, but I would rather honor the whole Jamaican Bob sled team. It's such a team accomplishment, even though you only brought one of them. If we were to choose, can't we just can we just say the guy is the bobsled team? Remember those guys. If if the committee is will, if our dark contract that is bid that we do this work until the end of time can be so altered <laughs> in this one instance that we make a special dispensation and bring in the team. If that's the case, I don't think we've ever had a candidate that's so well fit as your bar test. For instance, we'll take Dudley Stokes. Oh, you remember Dudley Stokes? Who? Oh, you know, the driver from the Jamaican bobsled team? You, you're going to get recognition on Dudley Stokes every time. Of course, of course. And here's, here's what I would say, and here's what I propose as one-third of this committee. I am in favor of inducting the entire Jamaican bobsled team. However, we must also pass a joint motion which says that this is the only team which will ever be enshrined in its totality. All, all other enshrinements must be individuals, but this is a specific honor that can only be conferred to the Jamaican bobsled team. That is what I would posit to you. I'm nervous about saying never again for any pairs or any teams. That, that worries me a little bit. I don't think it's something that's going to come up much, but... I mean, there's the 1969 Miracle Mets. We're never going to discuss those guys or something like that. It's it it. That's the trade-off. I don't know if I'm listen, ready to listen, make that trade-off. Listen, we can discuss the amazing Mets if we want, and you know, as a Phillies fan, fuck them. But <laughs> as an Orioles fan, fuck them. <laughs> we can discuss them, but if that day does come, we can only pick one of them. But I do feel that the bobsled team is so iconic in and of itself, that they do deserve the honor of being the only team to be inducted jointly. We, we, I, we've clearly agreed we're inducting the Jamaican men's bobsled team. Xavier, I think it's up to you. Is this a one-time exception or is this a... Again, I don't want this to be a regular thing. Something that we do lightly. But I want to leave the door cracked open for future dispensations as well. You clearly don't. I respect that. Xavier... Where do you stand on this? I think we should leave the door open because, you know, there are there are other situations where it doesn't have to be a team, but there are sports where duos are inseparable and we can't rule out ever talking about one of those. For example, just Misty May, Carrie Walsh. It's very hard to pick one of the two if we if for some someone was going to bring up something about about beach volleyball. I, I mean, we're going to stay away from doing teams for the most part, but if we ever were to talk about a duos thing, I don't want to be hamstrung by, the, by this rule. It's, I mean, that's two to one. So, I mean, I, you know, I rest my case. My case is defeated. My case I will, is... I will give you this. I will give you my word that I, again, do not take this lightly and that this is a, this is a break glass in case of emergency option. I, I, I endorse it. And dare I say, may I say? Please. We'd like to welcome... The entirety, led by Dudley Stokes, 
but the entirety of the Jamaican bobsled team, welcome to the Hall of Guy. And just for the record, one more time, that 1988 roster, we have Dudley Stokes, Devin Harris, Michael White, Chris Stokes, and I'll go ahead and include the alternates as well, Caswell Allen and Freddie Reggae Powell. Welcome. Congratulations. Welcome, gentlemen. And I do want to say, Devin Harris of the Jamaican Boston team, by far my favorite Devin Harris in all history. Devin Harris of the basketball player, your buzzer beater against the Sixers, was after the buzzer. The clock did not start on time. I will always say this. Fuck you, New Jersey Net Devin Harris. But thank you, Jamaican bobsled team member Devin Harris. Do you want that Devin Harris to join Mehmet Okor as forever banned? I mean, listen, I don't want to, to, to issue another ban. These would both be my bans. <laughs> and... That's also us making a lot of like executive decisions in a very short period of time. Chris. How about, and you know, this is what they call in the business a teaser. How about we rejoin next week and between making memories and our discussion, we decide whether or not Devin Harris is banned from the Hall of Guy. New Jersey net, Devin Harris. Jamaican bobsledder, Devin Harris. It's, it's spelled differently, by the way, I believe. It's an O for our Devin Harris here. Oh, a major difference. This is already this already makes me feel better. <laughs> well, to the 1988 Jamaican men's bobsled team, the hottest thing on ice. Welcome to the Hall of Guy, and thank you all once again for joining us on what I hope was an entertaining look at one of my favorite sporting events every four years, the Winter Olympics. Hopefully, you know it's not a, a entire mess with there being an ongoing pandemic still. And we get to see some good performances in the future, but we will always have great performances in the past to look back on. Anything else for you gentlemen as we head out here? Nothing for me. Nothing oh, for USA. Me. Yeah, this is the only time we will allow that, but yes, indeed. <laughs> Go USA. Uh, I've been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm your co-host, Diaz. And as Ronald Reagan once said regarding Mehmet Okor, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.